Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. This season, we're bringing in leading female powerhouses to take a deep dive into the topics that matter most to you. Technology, money, marketing, entrepreneurship, you name it, we're covering it all. Tune in every Wednesday for career, real talk, and BS-free advice from the best in the biz. Ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. It's safe to say 2020 has been a year of firsts. We have endured a pandemic, persevered through quarantine, and pivoted our personal and professional lives to digital. According to Stephanie Mehta, editor-in-chief of Fast Company, as businesses start to reopen, the greatest innovators in design, technology, and workplace leadership are thinking about the next normal, a world where flexibility and resilience are the coins of the realm. Stephanie says adhering to this quote-unquote next normal mentality will also set leaders up to deal with future pandemics and business interruptions. So how do we prepare for what's next? In this episode of Work Party, I sit down with Stephanie to discuss how the physical footprint of offices and work campuses will change and evolve, the impact of 2020's grand remote work experiment, and how we can best manage hybrid teams of remote and in-person workers. So let's get right into it. So welcome, Stephanie, to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. You know, you are the editor-in-chief of Fast Company, but I think oftentimes People think the editor-in-chief is one thing and it's sometimes another. So can you just describe your role as the editor-in-chief of Fast Company? Sure. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm such a fan of this medium and such a fan of the work that you all are doing, especially in the area of sort of female empowerment and leadership. So thank you for having me. So every publication or title has a slightly different definition of what the editor-in-chief does. But in my case, I really oversee all of our editorial operations from our magazine, which we still produce. We're hanging in there with print. Our daily website, which publishes 365 days a year. We have a robust sort of live journalism component. Back before the quarantine and lockdowns, we were doing a lot of um, conferences. We've shifted that to virtual events and webinars. We have podcasts and you know, our editorial lens touches a lot of different aspects of our business. You've been in the industry for a long time, you know, having been at different publications. 
How have you seen the industry shift? You know, you mentioned we're still hanging in there with print. I mean, it seems like so much has changed in such a short amount of time. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Sure. Thanks again for asking about that. You know, I started in newspapers. My first job was at a local newspaper in Norfolk, Virginia. And back then it was all print. There really wasn't much in the way of uh, digital at all. Uh, We didn't even, at the time I started in the early 90s, our newsroom didn't have email. We used an internal messaging system to communicate with one another. So all of our communications with sources and the outside world were phone calls and in-person meetings. It does seem like a long time ago now, but it really wasn't. I mean, this was you know, 25, 26 years ago. I think the biggest changes obviously have been the shift from print to digital, but there's also been a shift in the relationship between advertisers and underwriters and the um, the editorial outlets that depend on advertising and underwriting for their business model. You know, when I started at the Wall Street Journal in 1994, that newspaper was fat with advertisements because, you know, the best way for companies and organizations to sort of reach that high net worth demographic of influential leaders in business was to take out a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal. And back then, if you did an IPO and you were an investment bank, it was just expected that you would take out a big ad in the paper trumpeting you know, the involvement of your company in helping to underwrite a bond or an IPO or you know, some sort of financial event. So you know, while I don't want to take anything away from the people who were selling advertising back in the, before the digital era, there was a sense that you had to be in the Wall Street Journal, you had to be in Fortune, you had to be in Vogue, you had to be in certain of these sort of bellwether publications. What's changed, of course, is that advertisers have lots of different options for how to tell their stories and where to tell their stories. And so for us as a news outlet and as an editorial platform, I think the challenge for us and the opportunity for us is to help explain to advertisers and underwriters why they should affiliate with Fast Company, who we deliver in terms of audiences, but more and more, how can we solve a problem for them? How can we not only deliver quote unquote eyeballs, but how can we work together with them to help them tell their stories? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was a print journalism major at NYU and basically the year I graduated was the year that they launched the digital journalism major. So I had just missed like that whole moment in time is not that long ago to your point. And as you mentioned, you know, things are changing in the in sort of the, not only the business model of, of what you do, but also the way it's sort of communicated as well. So, you know, as a leader, your maxim has always been to zig when everybody else is zagging. So how does that motto still guide you today? And how do you recommend that to young journalists that are still listening? Yeah. So when I talked about sort of zigging when everyone else is zagging, you know, early in my career, that was just trying to find what, you know, conventionally today is called white space. Where is the area where I can carve out, where I can be differentiated, where I can put my stamp on something. And for me, early on, that was business journalism. When I was getting my start, you know, I felt like I was competing against people who had a lot more experience than I did, even coming out of journalism school. You know, I had done a couple of internships, but 
you know, I went to college with people who had dreamed of being journalists since they were eight or nine and had been writing, you know, their own newsletter and photocopying it and sticking it under their neighbor's doors. Like I just, I, I think I had a little bit of, you know, a little bit of insecurity when I got started in the profession. And so I thought, you know, I can't compete with these folks who have, you know, been training for this job their whole lives. So where can I carve out a role for myself? And I found out that, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of ambitious crusading journalism students were not that interested in covering the stock market or covering business or covering Main Street. So for me, that was a way to sort of say, here's how I can stand out. Here's how I can take the job that nobody else wants and make it my own. Later in my career, that sort of became taking on chances that on the surface may have seemed like lateral moves or demotions. But for me, the calculation was, this will actually be really good for me. I'm going to learn something new. And so I left the Wall Street Journal in 2000. I was actually an editor at that time. I was half editing, half writing. You know, I was doing a good job. I was on track to take on more management roles at the paper, but I felt like I wasn't a very good writer. I had become formulaic because when you're at a place like the journal and you're producing a lot of news stories and breaking news and trying to get information out as quickly as possible, both for print and at that point, increasingly for digital, you sort of develop a muscle memory and you kind of go with the path of least resistance and you just try to get the information out as fast as possible. And for me, I said, you know, I need to learn how to be a really good writer. And so I took a job at Fortune, which, you know, I think a lot of people said, that doesn't really seem like much of a promotion. You're basically maybe even taking a step backward because you're going back to being a writer. But I thought, you know, I'm not going to get the kind of opportunities to write and to learn how to be a writer if I don't take a job that really gives me that kind of opportunity and mentorship. So I took that job and, uh, you know, I think it it all worked out fine for me because I I got to do great work. I learned a ton and eventually got back on that, that editing track. Your business is more than the goods you sell or the services you provide. It's the heart of the economy. That's why I'm teaming up with MasterCard to support entrepreneurs by sharing my tips and advice to help local businesses, like how to maximize work from home productivity. Oh, working from home. What was once a desired company perk is now an everyday reality for many of us. It's great, in theory, hello, who doesn't want to skip their commute and work in the comfort of their own home all day? But as many of us have recently realized, it takes a lot of discipline to establish a routine that makes working from home productive. Here are a few of my tips. Number one, schedule breaks. Even if it's only for 10 minutes, taking breaks to eat, go for a walk, listen to music, do a power workout, or even just give your brain a quick rest is crucial to staying productive. Number two, create a dedicated workspace in your home. Easier said than done if you're living in a small apartment or with a roommate, but even a setup as simple as a cornered off section of your living room will help in separating your personal and professional spaces. Whatever you do, do not work from bed. Very dangerous. Number three, Set working hours and stick to them. Doing so will empower you to develop a routine for yourself like you typically would if you're working a nine to five in the office. And last but not least, eliminate distractions. Just like you wouldn't watch TV at the office, don't watch TV during the workday or while working from home. For more tools and resources, go to mastercard.us slash local biz. That's mastercard.us slash local biz. 
Together, let's start something priceless. Hi, new friends. I'm Jackie Schimmel, philanthropist, motivational speaker, glowing wife, animal rights activist, and a shoulder to cry on. Not really. I'm a crazy bitch, but a hoot and a half. If you haven't listened to my podcast, The Bitch Bible, brace yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink, and get ready to laugh your ass off or cry. Make sure you subscribe yourself to The Bitch Bible Podcast right now. You're going to effing love it. For younger creative individuals just getting started, I think the same thing can apply. It's about finding ways that you can differentiate yourself in your career. And oftentimes it means taking the job that nobody else wants. I I once heard, I think it was an interview with John Mulaney, who talked about uh, his first year at Saturday Night Live as a writer. And nobody wanted to write the celebrity monologue. That was the one job that nobody in the writer's room wanted. And John and another writer decided they were just going to volunteer to do that every week, that no one wanted that job. They were going to sign up, raise their hand and voluntarily say, I'm going to take this job that nobody else wants. And, you know, if I'm describing the, the story correctly, you know, it turned out to be a great opportunity for him because, you know, P.S. He was meeting all of these celebrities every week and sitting down with them and trying to get to the essence of, you know, a monologue that would make them look both funny and good. But also, you know, his his colleagues and his peers and his boss, Lord Michael, took notice and realized, oh, you know, this guy's got something, you know, rather than waiting for one of his skits to get picked up week after week after week. And that's very competitive. And, you know, you never know on any given week if you're going to get your skit picked up on the show. He was guaranteed every week to get something on the show. So I think that there's, there's a real value in, in taking on the job that nobody else wants. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, how has business coverage changed? You know, you, again, you started in college, you know, newspapers writing about business, you know, how has that coverage changed over time? Yeah, in so many ways. I mean, I think the biggest difference is that in the 25 plus years that I've been a business journalist, business leaders have gone from being household names inside investment banks and inside corporate spheres to being household names full stop. Everybody in the world probably knows who Mark Zuckerberg is. And, you know, 30 years ago, you know, there was a rarefied group of people who knew who Jack Welsh, the CEO of GE at the time was. So business leaders have become household names. In some cases, they've become rock stars, albeit controversial rock stars like Elon Musk. Some people would argue they are the great hope for our world, like a guy like Bill Gates. Particularly during this pandemic, he's been very visible talking about the importance of science. And a lot of people hold up Bill Gates as somebody who's doing the right thing. Again, there's some controversy around him as well. So, you know, I would say that the visibility of business people and business has only grown in the last 25 years. And I would add that as a result, um, it's not a backwater anymore. You don't have young people sort of taking jobs at business publications or covering the business beat sort of grudgingly. I think you see more and more young journalists saying, that's where I want to be. I want to cover Silicon Valley. I want to cover cool upstarts like, you know, the direct-to-consumer companies that have sprung up in the last couple of years, particularly here in New York. 
you mentioned that now, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are now household names, you know, they're celebrities in some, you know, way, shape or form. How do you think that has impacted the world of business in a good way and maybe in a bad way? And, you know, notably like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos and um, Elon Musk are all obviously men, but there is a lot of notable female, you know, entrepreneurs that have sort of, again, taken the ranks in that way. And so do you think that it's a positive thing or a negative thing or a combination of both for, you know, this new sort of era as the entrepreneur, as the celebrity? I, I would say overall, it's a good thing, especially when it is a founder that is being celebrated in a capitalist society. And, you know, there are a lot of haves and have nots in society. And, you know, capitalism, I think, has swung too far in the sort of free market direction. And we see a lot of companies and a lot of organizations starting to have a dialogue about course correcting. But ultimately, you know, we also live in a culture that celebrates innovation and that celebrates inventiveness and coming up with new things and coming up with things that, you know, are hopefully good for the world. And, you know, as controversial as Elon Musk is, you know, he has been instrumental in creating an electric car ecosystem. You know, before Tesla came along, there were lots of, lots of efforts to create an electric car, some more successful than others. But you can't look at electric cars without acknowledging the important role that Elon Musk has played. And if you believe that electric cars are good for the planet and good for the world, you, know, you have to believe that he has played an important positive role in, in moving the needle on that. And so I think that when these entrepreneurs are creating and building, you know, it's hard to begrudge them the trappings that come with creating a company that has a lot of value. The downside of it is manifold. A lot of these executives, someone like a Mark Zuckerberg is a great example of someone who has you know, near absolute control of his company. The way that that company is structured uh, as a public institution, Mark Zuckerberg you know, really does have a lot of voting power. And so you know, it makes it very hard to second guess or outvote him on anything. So those are some of the, the, the challenges associated with the amount of power these folks have amassed. What is so impressive about founder stories is that I've you know, mentioned two white guys, but you know, there are plenty of great examples of women and people of color who've built great companies. And the ability to take an idea and move it into the marketplace and achieve some success is something that we, you know, we at Fast Company celebrate all the time. Um, and, you know, as I said, these are, if, you're, if you founded a company and built it, I think society is much more forgiving of letting those individuals enjoy the spoils of their success versus, you know, CEOs who get paid 700 times what their average employee mm. is getting paid without having put any risk into it without any real skin in the game, the way you see with founders. So cut to 2020, <laughs> obviously the business world has been turned upside down. How has your coverage sort of changed since the pandemic hit? And what are you really seeing out there in terms of both small business and larger corporations in terms of their reaction and responses? 
Yeah, I mean, it is really sort of a tale of two economies. I mean, for every small business that has had to sadly shut its doors because of the lockdowns and the inability to um, serve customers, you know, you're also seeing, you know, real inventiveness and, you know, companies, particularly, you know, I'm thinking of technology companies sort of rise to the challenge and come up with new ways of doing things and you know doing things that they thought weren't possible before. So for us, our coverage has sort of also been a little bit bifurcated. We do do a lot of service stories about how to take advantage of at the first, you know, in the first wave, it was trying to provide information to our readers about accessing some of the SBA loan programs and the other government loan programs and just making sure, you know, you knew how to get your check um, from the government. And, you know, we were also trying to tell survival stories, trying to show examples of businesses that had either shifted gears, you know, fashion companies that started making masks and other protective gear. Dyson, the maker of home appliances, famously sort of shifted their production and you know, use their design prowess to start developing parts for ventilators. So we told a lot of those stories in the early days of the pandemic. We also did a lot of stories that did particularly well and just started talking about the science of the pandemic, the importance of wearing masks, the challenges around testing, the challenges around contact tracing. You know, more recently, the other trend that we've been writing a lot about are these sort of permanent changes as companies think about going back to work. And so, you know, now you do have a, a number of organizations who are letting their non-essential workers start to go back into the office and filter back into public spaces. And so writing about um, the design of those spaces, how you can use technology to keep your workers safe. That has been a big shift for us and I think will continue to be something we'll write about because the truth is there's no sort of before and after. There's only, you know, we're not going back to the way things were in, you know, February 2020. A lot of the changes that we are uh, living through today are going to be permanent. So speaking of, you know, let's talk a little bit about the next normal, the phase in which people start reopening, what are some of the challenges you think businesses are going to be facing as we kind of get back into this you know, new phase of normalcy? Yeah, I would say for companies, they just need to be aware that they can't assume anything, that the key is going to have to be flexibility or agility or however you want to think about it. But, you know, there will continue to be employees who simply do not have a comfort level about returning to a, a public workspace, whether that's because they don't want to take public transportation or because they don't want to be in proximity to other people or they may have health concerns. And I think employers are going to have to understand that that is going to be an ongoing part of the dynamic. And then there are going to be people who, you know, especially here where I live in the New York uh, metropolitan area, there are some people who commute two hours a day to get into the city. I can't imagine that people who have gotten four hours of their lives back as a result of this pandemic are going to be jumping up and down to go back to that way of, of working. And so you know, companies need to be prepared for the fact that some people may just say, I would like to work from home permanently because 
I'm more productive and it's, it's better for you if I can have those four hours back. Those are going to be human resources challenges because every company culture is different. But if you have a company culture that pits you know, the in-office people against the remote people, there's going to be a real challenge for, for you as a culture. Some of the other challenges that companies are going to be facing as we come through this is how do they think about childcare for employees who have you know, school-aged children at home? As a society, the United States has basically you know, ceded the role of childcare and family leave to you know, corporations, and we don't have subsidized childcare as a, as a policy. We basically subsidized childcare in this country for most Americans is public schools. Right. You know, we rely so much on in-person schools for childcare, and so I, I think for um, for large companies, you know, that employ, you know, tens of thousands of people, coming up with some sort of longer-term solution to that is is potentially something that they'll have to contend with. And the last piece is, you know, more long-term, the planning units and the operations units of these organizations are going to have to take a, a long, hard look at what their real estate needs are going to be going forward. The need for these big footprints in you know, giant office towers, it, it seems to be you know, that the, there'll be a lot of rethinking of, of where they allocate their, their resources on that. And that's going to be a long-term conversation that's probably already happened at a lot of companies. Absolutely. So obviously Fast Company has built such a great reputation and has, you know, prided itself on creating meaningful content. So how do you build trust in the era of fake news? Talk me through your content strategy and how we get past this sort of chatter and echo chamberness that's sort of happening online. Yeah, it's a very big topic and I'm not exactly sure that we've entirely cracked the code. I mean, as you noted, we we do rely on our reputation. We we've been able to stand on the shoulders of, you know, 25 years of really credible journalism. For us, you know, and I I think a lot of editorial institutions don't do a good enough job of this, but, you know, we're pretty transparent about our process. You know, we we have fact checkers for all the magazine stories. Um, It's either the, the journalist fact checks his or her piece themselves. Um, In some cases, we'll hire a fact checker. We have copy editors who look at stories multiple times before they get printed in the magazine. All of our digital pieces get looked at by an editorial editor and a copy editor. You know, so we have checks and balances. And um, the fact that we have them and that we don't have a lot of errors that we, you know, on our site and that we don't have to run a lot of corrections... I think is one way of showing the world that you know we we stand by the quality of our journalism. The news profession as a whole has never felt the need to defend itself in the way that we are now because I think there was just an assumption that people understood that in a functioning democracy, uh, you know, a free press was was table stakes. In journalism, we've certainly seen actors and periods of time where you saw sort of exploitative or tabloid journalism but for the most part you know mainstream news has has enjoyed credibility and trust uh, at, that is now clearly being eroded I feel like you know 
we as business journalists, for sure, demand transparency of the companies we write about, or we hear companies that we write about talk a lot about transparency, there's probably an opportunity for us to be a little bit more transparent about our process. You know, anybody who's been through the fact-checking process from a, a publication like The New Yorker or Vanity Fair, where I used to work, they all come up to me and they say, wow, you guys are thorough. The questions I get asked, the the double checking, like it's it's it, it's an almost invasive process. But they're grateful to be on the other side of it, and they're grateful for the care. It's probably time for us as um, as media outlets to tell more of those stories. Definitely, and obviously, you are a woman in a leadership position, and mentorship is really crucial for women who aspire to take on leadership roles like yourself. But they're not always easy to find. Has anyone been a mentor for you? And what were some of the obstacles you faced as a woman coming up in such a male-dominated sector? You know, I would say that for me, I had a lot of mentors coming up. um, And because it was a male-dominated sector, most of my mentors were males. My first job in journalism, I had a, a great editor who would just, you know, sit down with me after I would turn in a big feature story. And we would just sit side by side and go over the story line by line. And he would not only make changes, but explain why he was making the changes. And it was just incredibly invaluable to me because I was, I was just absorbing all the lessons of how to organize a story and, you know, was just benefiting from, from his wisdom. But at that first job in journalism, and, you know, I, I was this kid from the Chicago suburbs. I had landed in town, the city of Norfolk. Northern Virginia is very different from Southern Virginia. And it, it definitely was a different world for me. But I had been at the, the newspaper for about, I guess, maybe three or four weeks. And I got a message on that internal messaging system I had described earlier. And it was from one of the editors. I think we had met informally over, a, over the, the coffee you know, machine. But she said, a bunch of us are having dinner on Friday night at someone's home. Why don't you join us? And it was a group of about five or six women, all much older than I was. You know, they were in their their 30s and 40s. I was just out of school at the time. And they adopted me. You know, they didn't have to. I, I don't I don't think I did anything special to attract their attention, but it, maybe they felt bad for me. <laughs> they felt sorry for me. Like who's this this doe-eyed kid in the newsroom? But they really took me under their wing and they, they were great because they, they filled me in on the gossip. They helped me understand, you know, which editors you wanted to work for, which editors had reputations for being lazy and, and not particularly attentive to copy. I was there for almost two years and the whole time, you know, not only could I count on them if I needed, you know, advice one of them was the book editor. And so, you know, she would give me extra books so I wouldn't have to go out and buy them. And, you know, I could save the, the $25 on the hardcover because she had an extra review copy. But then like, you know, we, we, we would go on weekend trips together and it was just, it was the camaraderie and it was that informal mentoring that was so meaningful to me. And I'm so grateful to them. And they're, you know, they're all people I still think very fondly of to this day. So looking back, obviously, throughout the span of your career, what has been the most important advice you've received as you were kind of coming up the chain? I always remember the the journalistic advice that I get around, you know, the the way to organize stories that all of those like sort of mantras that you hear from different editors, those are all rattling around in my head. And I, I repeat them to, to the people I edit now. 
the ghost of, of editors past are probably rattling around in my head. I've always gotten good advice around being willing to take risks, you know, and, and for me, it is, you know, being a little fearless about the kinds of stories you assign. One thing that is a really good piece of advice I've, I've sort of absorbed from, from different editors over the years is, is trusting your writers um, and trusting your, your team. You know, I periodically meet with my editors and sometimes I'll just say, let's just, let's just assign something to this writer or to this editor or to this reporter because I may not know what the story is. I'm not as close to the material as the writer is. But if we tell them, you know, take this topic and interrogate it and explore it and come back with something really great. If you have writers and reporters and editors you can trust, I've rarely been disappointed by, you know, trusting someone to come back with something great. So when it comes to taking these risks, you know, what happens when you fail or stumble or when something hasn't worked out for you? And what do you do in those moments? Yeah, I, I think that when something has gone horribly sideways or gone wrong, one of the things I really try to do is, um, and I know this sounds a little cliched or maybe Pollyanna-ish, but I really try to figure out what went wrong. I try not to be defensive about it. I, I definitely beat myself up about it, but I try to move past the sort of self-flagellation as quickly as I can and sort of say, you know, all right, what went wrong here? Why did this story fail? Why did this hire not work out? Why did this particular you know, deal not make it out the door? And you know, there are lessons to be learned from that, but it really requires everyone to go into those conversations. And sometimes they're just conversations I'm having with myself, but you kind of have to go in with a sort of non-defensive position. You need to go in and sort of say, okay, acknowledge that there was a mistake, acknowledge that something went wrong, and then, you know, really try to do a postmortem. What, what went wrong and how can we make sure it doesn't happen again? You're constantly innovating at Fast Company and obviously this year making a ton of different changes. Where do you see Fast Company in the future and where do you see media going in the future? I think media will continue to be multi-platform and I'm not smart enough to know what the next platform is, but you know, it's been amazing to see the way podcasting, for example, has taken off and become such an important part of a lot of different publishing companies' mixes, whether it's the New York Times with their portfolio of, of podcasts or companies that have been built on podcasting and are now sort of branching out into other things. You see podcasters creating, you know, conferences or creating television shows. So, you know, there's something sort of virtuous about you know, seizing on the next media platform, finding a way to make it your own, and then figuring out how you can you know, either backward integrate it into products and services you already engage in or create whole new things. So I think the future of media is absolutely multimedia. For Fast Company, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we're turning to 25 in November. When Fast Company started in November 1995, there were a ton of other technology and business magazines. Around the time Fast Company got started, you could find titles like, and I'm really going to be dating myself. Most of your listeners probably don't know these, these magazines, but there was a magazine called Business 2.0. There was a magazine called um, Red Herring. There was a magazine called E-Company Now. 
There was a magazine dedicated just to venture capital, and then Wired and Fast Company. And, you know, two of us are still standing. And I think it's not just because, you know, we had the the best management or the best editors or the best articles, but I think it's because both of those titles had real points of view um, and and really had something unique to say about the world of business. So I think that for us, you know, we, going back to the zig while everybody is zagging, I think we are, we position ourselves very much as an alternative to, you know, Forbes, Fortune, Business Week. We're not, we're not in that same category by design. You know, I, I, and part of it is, you know, we're trying to differentiate, we're trying to tell different stories in the marketplace, but I also think we have a different kind of reader. And so um, I, I like where we sit in that marketplace because, you know, a lot of our readers don't read those other magazines. They're not individuals who, you know, pick up the, whose first read in the morning is the Wall Street Journal, right? Um, you know, so for us, I think it's going to be a, a, a story of continued differentiation and continuing to sort of push what's next in business in the same way that 25 years ago, my predecessor said, you know, no one's talking about design in business. Very few publications were focused on the role of design and design thinking. And, you know, my predecessor said, let's carve out an, an expertise in writing about design. You know, it was some 20 years ago that um, John Byrne, who became editor, said, hey, let's focus on what he called social capital, which today is sometimes called social impact or social responsibility. But, you know, well before that became a mainstream topic of, of business conversation, Fast Company sort of said, let's carve out an area of expertise here. So my hope is that in the future, we will carve out new areas of expertise that, you know, put us a little bit ahead and put us a little bit differentiated from you know, more traditional business publications. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This was so insightful and so interesting kind of going into the new media world. And congratulations. That's crazy that only two of you are still left standing, but I agree. It is definitely the point of view um, that keeps you so relevant. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jacqueline. Really appreciate it. Have you bought your copy of Work Party the Book? Part career manifesto, part practical business advice, Work Party the Book is everything I wish I knew during my early years as an entrepreneur. The ups, the downs, the things I learned and the women that helped me to make it happen. Just like in our podcast, Work Party the Book does not shy away from the nitty gritty details you need to know. If you hope to start your own business or become the HBIC at your current gig, we're here to help you out. Available in hardcover and audiobook on Amazon, also on iBooks at Target and your local bookstore. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com so you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.